Hello and welcome to the next in my series of studies in John's Gospel. One of the things that happens when you preach systematically through the Bible and you make a decision not to avoid any verses is that you sometimes come to verses that are difficult or controversial or sometimes verses that your understanding of differs to that of others. And we seem to have had quite a few of them in John's Gospel. We've got another one today. But I've actually really enjoyed looking at this in a little bit more depth. Not everyone's going to agree with it, but at least we're going to tackle something that's a little bit tricky. And I think that's fun. We're in John chapter 12, where Jesus has talked about now being the time at which he is going to be glorified. He says his soul is troubled. We've looked at this in some of our previous studies about how uh, that the, the cross is the moment he's preparing for. And this is a huge thing and not something that he is uh, looking forward to. It's a difficult and painful time. We talked about uh, in a more recent study about the whole role of the prince of this world, Satan, and, and the dynamic between good and evil, between God and Satan. And he talks about being lifted up, uh, meaning on the cross, and that he will draw all people to himself. And we looked at that in a recent one. It's important just to have that in mind. You might want to go back to it. That Jesus uh, talks, when he talks about all people, we looked at whether that means everyone will be saved or that every person will have the opportunity to be saved. And he tells the people to put their trust in the light while they have light. And so we're going to pick it up at John 12, verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill, verse 38, the word of Isaiah, the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So this is a quote from Isaiah 53. It's verse 1, in fact. Now, the context, and the context of quotes is always important. The context is a very familiar passage in Isaiah 52 going into 53, talking about the suffering Savior. It's a prediction hundreds of years before Jesus about a servant who would be despised and rejected by the people and that they wouldn't recognize that he was dying uh, in their place. And I want to just read that passage to you because I think it's significant. I'm gonna, we start at uh, chapter 52 and verse 13, and you'll see the link with what Jesus has just said about being lifted up. And you'll see that Jesus is deliberately drawing their attention to this passage in the Old Testament. Because Isaiah starts, says, See my servant who will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And that's... A, a parallel with what Jesus has just talked about, being lifted up onto the cross. And then uh, Isaiah continues, just as there were many people who were appalled at him, his appearance was disfigured, that of, so disfigured about any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. And I want you to just notice this bit because we'll come back to it. For what they were told they will see, what they were not told they will see, I beg your pardon, for what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. And that's the, directly the verse that precedes the verse that... Uh, John quotes around uh, talking about Jesus. Who has believed our message? Or it's the next chapter. We've put chapters in later, of course, and the original text doesn't have them. So this is the next line. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
So he's talking about belief coming unexpectedly to people. And he grew up. I'm going to take us a little bit further in this passage in Isaiah 53. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. We may be familiar with these words. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And this is, of course, describing the moment that John is telling us is about to happen to Jesus. He was despised, Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And, though the, and through the Lord make his life an offering for sin. What is John pointing us to? He's pointing us to the enactment and fulfillment of the Messiah who takes our place and it's God's will that he should die, but we reject him. And this is now being played out to the uh, people in Jesus' life. And then if we go back to John 12, we read these words. For this reason, they could not believe they could not believe because it was important that Jesus is crucified. It's important that these words are fulfilled. Because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, this is verse 39, um, and he's going to give us the reason why they could not believe. Now, this is where it gets controversial and interesting and, and fun to look into if you've got a mind like mine. Because John quotes a different passage from Isaiah. It goes like this. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Now if you remember at the end of 52, the people are believing and understanding. But here in this passage from Isaiah, they, their hearts are hardened so that they cannot believe and they cannot understand. And John concludes, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So this is a different part of Isaiah. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 10. But John has changed the words. He's adapted it. And that's important. And we're going to explore what that means. Because the question that many of us asked is, how could it be that People, that people have their eyes blinded. Is this God's will? Is it God hardening and stopping people believe? Is it God's intention that some people will believe and other people won't? Is it God's intention that he takes hold of people and makes it impossible for them to choose Jesus? And that's a part of many people's Christian faith. And I want to try and, and, and look at that in the whole context of this passage, of Isaiah, and of the rest of the New Testament. Has God caused people not to believe in Jesus? That's a really important question because there'll be some among us who we know who will say, well, has God stopped me believing? Can I not be a Christian? Now, you may, if you watch these talks, know that I find it very important to harmonize and understand the difficult passages in the context of 
other parts of the Bible because I believe that Scripture is intended to interpret itself. They're not spent, the Bible is not spent to, intended to be contradictory or in opposition, but for each part to help us understand the other parts. So what do we do with 2 Timothy 2? where as Paul tells Timothy that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of his truth. Now, if he wants all people to be saved, why does he harden some people's hearts? Why would he stop some people believing? He gave himself as a ransom, 2 Timothy 2.4, for all people. Now, why would he do that for all people if he knew in advance that there were some people that he wasn't going to allow to believe? Peter says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, he says that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That He's waiting that the day of the Lord is, is, is slow in coming. The return of Christ, the judgment of mankind is slow in coming. Why? Because God is waiting for people to, to repent. It doesn't say he's just waiting for the people he's chosen. It says he wants everyone to have the opportunity to repent. And even John in his gospel has these very familiar words which we keep coming back to because they're so crucial in our understanding of the good news of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. So there seems to be a clear implication that God wants people to have the choice. And then it's spelt out in 17, he did not send his son into the world to condemn but to save. Now that's difficult to understand if he's already chosen who's going to have their hearts hardened. So how do we possibly explain? Is there a contradiction? Well, some people would say this there is. There is a contradiction and one part of the Bible is right and the other part is wrong. In other words, either God does not want everyone saved or he did not stop some people believing and that you just have to choose which bit of the Bible you want to believe in. And although I personally don't believe that the Bible is like that, I believe the Bible is God's intended word and that it, it, it is not contradictory. There are many who uh, believe that they believe the Bible, but in effect what they do is decide which bits they believe. And that's a danger and a risk to all of us. Now the second uh, explanation is to say that it's a mystery and that we can't work out how these two ideas hold together. So that we believe that God does want everyone saved and he does stop some people believing. That's a very common uh, understanding within Christianity and within our own church and that's, that, that's perfectly valid. We just can't explain how these two things are true. We believe they're both true, but we don't know how that is. However, I'm going to take you in a different place because I think there is a clear explanation for these verses. And it goes back to where I said that John has changed the Isaiah quote. And so I want to suggest that that's deliberate. He hasn't misquoted Isaiah, but he's drawn our attention to something. Because in John 12, the key thing is he says he has blinded their eyes. And so the big question is, who is the he? The assumption in the previous two explanations is that the he is God and that God has blinded their eyes and that John is saying that God has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe. Now, the he isn't actually in the original passage. 
The original passage is God's command to Isaiah to go and prophesy. In verse 9, the context, he says, go and tell this, uh, go and tell this people they're ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might uh, see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand their hearts and turn and be saved. The he in this passage is Isaiah himself. Isaiah is told to go and preach in such a way that they, they, they reject him. One, that seems a very strange thing and we're going to come back to why that is in a moment. So is it possible that when uh, John changes it to he, he's saying it's not Isaiah? And if it's not Isaiah, who has he been talking about? Now, this is where we go back to where we were studying just a few sessions ago. In verse 31, he has been talking about the prince of this world. He's been talking about Satan. And so I think it's fairly understandable and legitimate, if not the obvious reading, that the he who has blinded their eyes is the prince of this world, i.e. Satan. And uh, that, that this comes from the context and that then fits in with what Paul says, where he says in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the implication is that Satan blinds people's eyes. He stops them believing. That would appear to be more consistent with the New Testament and consistent with Isaiah. So there is a reason that John changes the Isaiah quote and Satan causes unbelief. But I want to say one final thing about the Isaiah thing because we may say, well, why did God ask Isaiah to harden their hearts? Well, what becomes clear is that it is a temporary thing to achieve a particular purpose. Because Isaiah, and this is the next verse in that chapter 6, verse 11. Isaiah said, how long, O Lord? How long must I make it difficult for them to believe? And he answered, until. Until the cities lie ruined without inhabitants. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. What he's saying is the hardening of the hearts is a temporary thing until the punishment and judgment of God that are taking them into exile, which we're looking at in the, in the return in Ezra, until that has happened. It's not a permanent stopping people believe. It's saying that God has now brought about his uh, judgment and they've had loads of opportunities to repent. But for a period now, that season is over and this will happen. Now, does that have any relevance to our context in John chapter 12? Well, I want to suggest to you that it does and that John is telling us that Jesus now has to die. That weekend, he is going to be crucified and therefore there are people who are not going to be allowed to, to repent in the next 36, 48 hours. They are going to need to bring Jesus to that point of crucifixion to tie in 
with Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant. It has to happen. And so for a time, as in Isaiah 6, 1, for a temporary period until what God needs to do happens, some people are not able to change their mind and believe. And that is that the, the, that which Satan has caused, the blinding, is now going to be lasting for a few more days. That's my understanding. I don't believe God stops people believing. I believe Satan does it. I believe there are times when God allows that to happen for a short period of time to fulfill his purposes, as with Pharaoh. But in the end, everyone is responsible and has the opportunity to believe. That's my understanding. Others will take a different view, but at least I've given you an explanation as to how I think that works with this passage. But why does it matter? I, uh, John says in verse 41, Jesus said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. And a later verse, in a, uh, which we'll look at in a study or two's time, he says, I've come, Jesus says, I've come into the world as a light so that no one believes in me should stay in darkness. And as for those who hear my words but do not keep them, John 12, 47, I do not judge them. We're going to look at this in a few studies' time. For I did not come into to judge the world, but to save the world. Note the echo of John 3.17. But what is he saying? He's saying, I've come to save. My intention and my desire is to save. So why does it matter how we understand? Because it seems very clear to me from the Bible, from the New Testament, from the life of Jesus, from the words of Jesus, is that his desire was to save. He didn't come to judge. He didn't come to exclude. He didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to get people lost. He came to find the lost. He came to save. He came to restore. He came to bring back. And that's crucial to understanding the mission of Jesus. He comes that anyone and everyone might have the opportunity to believe. Now, if the belief that God disables some from belief today is a misinterpretation of the Bible, if that is not what the Bible teaches, then it matters because we have reported God's character incorrectly. We have made him out to be fickle of predetermining who he's going to save and who not, and that the whole teaching of Jesus that he's come to save is a charade because he hasn't come to save everyone. And I think that's really serious if it's not true. Really serious if it's not true. And it will hinder and does hinder belief in God. People say, how can I follow a God who's already decided? And that hurts God because I believe his passion, his desire is to save. And so we must be very careful if we are saying that God has chosen who he will not save. I understand how that's an interpretation of the Bible. And I hope I've explained why I don't think that's what this passage is saying. But I think we have to be very cautious in saying it. Really clear that we know that that's the whole counsel of God. So here are our questions for reflection. Firstly, whose eyes do I see blinded to faith in my own life? People who I see just can't get it, just can't understand. And if I can see that Satan is blinding their eyes, perhaps I can pray into that. Perhaps that changes and informs the way I pray. Praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to stand against, to lift, to counteract the work of Satan. 
in a family member or a colleague or a loved one or a good friend's life? And secondly, how much have I an understanding of God's desire to save? Do I really grasp hold of this burning yearning of God to come to earth, to take on humanity, to die in our place and to reach and save the lost? It's imperative to him to give the opportunity to people to believe. And I wonder if we've grasped and grabbed that for ourselves. And where might I have hurt God by attributing to him something that Satan actually does? And we looked at that a few weeks ago when we talked about the prince of this world and we looked at the things that, that, that Satan has control of in this world. But let's be careful to honour God in all of this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bring to you those who we see blinded, who we long to uh, accept and understand and grasp your love. And so we ask that you would remove the scales, that you would set them free, that would you allow them to look again. And Father, where we have perhaps misunderstood you, not grasped your passion to save, not grasped your conviction and desire that people would repent. We ask for your mercy. Help us to give honour to you and to recognise the works of the evil one. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.